Welcome to Walking in Faith, a weekly podcast dedicated to examining the Bible to help lifelong seekers of the kingdom of God expand their faith and understanding by exploring God's Word. Now let's join Pastor Rob Harrington as he shares this week's message. Take your Bibles if you would and join with me as we're continuing our journey through Luke as Luke is recording the eyewitness accounts of Jesus' life and ministry and teaching. Today we're in Luke chapter 22, verses 24 through 30, as we look at a frivolous dispute, a childish, a immature dispute argument between the disciples. Let me ask you this question. What do, there's no prize for this, but it's just a question. What do Tom Brady, Michael Jordan, Wayne Gretzky, Babe Ruth, Jack Nicholas, and Pele have in common? They're all, this very true. Someone said it. They are the GOAT or considered the GOAT in their respective um, uh, sports. Now, arguably, there may be some who say, well, this guy is or not. But typically, these men that I just share with you are considered the GOAT, the greatest of all time. That's what the GOAT stands for, the greatest of all time. Time And of course, every generation, someone else comes up and says, this person is a goat or this person is the greatest. And it's always just a great debate. But in the end, it really doesn't matter, except to say that Michael Jordan is the goat. Now, I know some of you here in the L.A. area may say it's LeBron James. But my question is, is how can LeBron James be better than Michael Jordan when he's not even better than Kobe Bryant? Amen. All right. <laughs> Mic drop. Let's pray with our prayers and we're dismissed. Now, that's not the message today. But in today's passage, the disciples are having a goat discussion. They're trying to discuss or argue among themselves which one of them is the greatest of all time. Look with me in Luke chapter 22, verse 24. The first part is going to be here on the monitor. But again, I encourage you to bring your Bibles. Have something to write in, to take notes. We provide some of those things to you. But there's something about writing your Bible journaling that I think is much more helpful in our edification and learning. But we see here in Luke 22, 24, just a simple sentence here. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest, as the goat in my version here. Father, Lord, we think of this and think this is just silly. Why are they doing this at such a, a, a time and, and an important time as this? But that's how our minds work. That's how our hearts go. Our hearts are always going towards who's the greatest, who's the best. Where do I fit in on these things? And we're always jockeying for positions and things of that nature, Father, just these pre- trivial pursuits. But Father, I pray that as we look at your word here, uh, you have something special in mind for us this morning. It is no accident or coincidence that we be happen to be in Luke 22, uh, 23 through, or 20, uh, 30, whatever it is, through 24 through 30 this morning and discussing this. This is your appointed, ordained time for us to consider this passage 2,000 years after the events almost, and then to ask in our own hearts, Lord, are we mimicking mirroring the attitude of these disciples. I pray it's not so. But Lord, as we listen to what Christ had to say, how he rebuked them, how he encouraged them, Lord, may we take it as well and understand what he's trying to teach us through the Holy Spirit. In your name we pray. Amen. Now, you might remember last week's passage. 
Jesus and the disciples had finished the Passover dinner as Jesus inaugurates the promised new covenant when God will write his laws upon the hearts and he will be our God and we will be his people. The day of redemption is near as Christ prepares to be sacrificed for the sins of God's children. He is that last Passover lamb. However, as you and I come to Luke 22, verse 24, 24, we immediately after discovering that one of their own is going to betray them, and they're questioning that, they're wondering what Jesus means, Judas leaves and they're still oblivious to what's going on, they now begin to question among themselves and argue, dispute of who is going to be the greatest, who is the greatest of disciples, who will be greatest in the kingdom of God. Theologian David Garland remarks that one cannot think of a more inappropriate time for the disciples to bicker over who is the greatest. Very quickly, their mind goes away from the one who betrays Christ to the one who's going to be the best. Instead of considering the implications of Jesus' warnings, they are self-absorbed and self-centered about their own standing in the kingdom of God. Part of me, though, wishes I could have been there to hear their arguments. That must have been a great dispute. Of course, this wasn't the first time this argument had come up. Several days earlier, the mother of James and John had requested that her two sons sit at the right and left hand of Jesus in the kingdom. I'm sure that these two sons of thunders held their own against the confidence of Peter and the other disciples. But it must have broken Jesus' heart to see and hear these men arguing among themselves when his betrayal was so close. In verse 25, I think he finally, however, I don't know, it doesn't tell us how long he allowed the discussion to go on. But in verse 25, he finally rebukes their sinful attitudes. He calls them out. Look at verse 25. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. So he's pointing out to him, you guys are like Gentile Caesars and rulers and magistrates. All you want to do is lord over people, or he calls them, you want to be benefactors. And we're going to look at that in a minute. What does it mean to be a benefactor? Jesus points out that their attitude reflected that of the world rather than the heart of God. Since the days of Nimrod in Genesis chapter 10 and 11 and 12 at the Tower of Babel, men and women have sought to assert power over others through power, manipulation, and yes, even goodwill. Jesus uses that word benefactory, which was an honorary title. It benefited someone who was a well-doer. It was a title of honor conferred on someone who had done their country a service to point out this truth. Now, there are some great examples of godly benefactors here in the scripture, such as the centurion and, the, and Cornelius, uh, both of them Gentiles. You'll see it here on the monitor in Luke 7. You might recall this story. And when they came to Jesus, speaking of the religious leaders... They pleaded with him earnestly saying, he, the Roman centurion, is worthy to have you do this for him, to heal a servant. For he loves our nation and he is the one who has built us this synagogue. He was a benefactor who, who used his money and influence to help the Jews. In Acts chapter 10, Cornelius, 
was a devout man. Again, another, another Gentile who feared God with all of his household. And he gave alms generously to the people and prayed continually to God. So these men also were benefactors. But unlike these two men, earthly benefactors are using their wealth and generosity for selfish gain, status, and power. They use it to manipulate the populace, similar to what many do today, including our politicians who promise us the world, if only we would pledge our allegiance, our vote, and our support to them. So Jesus is saying, you're like kings and magistrates and governors, and you're also like benefactors. You only do good so that someone would set you up. The kingdom of God, though, has different values. And still, after three years, they have not let that sunk in. In verse 26, we continue to read. Jesus says, but not so with you. That's how the world thinks, but this should not be your thinking. He goes on, rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as one who serves the kingdom of God turns everything upside down, topsy-turvy. What you think is up is down, and what is down is up. Jesus here is informing us that the kingdom of God, its values and its ethics reverse this world's values and ethics. In the kingdom of God, the greatest is the youngest. The leader is the servant. To correct their wrong thinking, Jesus points to the illustration of a servant who waits tables in verse 27. Look at verse 27. For who is the greater one, the one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? You can think of this. Who is the greater? When you go into the restaurant, you expect the waiter or the waitress to serve you, right? To fulfill your obligation to get what you... Could you imagine going to a restaurant and you say, yes, I'd like to have... And they say, no... You're not getting that. You're getting this. This is what you get. Uh, can I get some more salt? You don't need salt. I, I'm looking at you. You don't need any more salt. Can I get a refill? No, you can't have a refill. Well, of course not. They, they, they work to serve our needs. And Jesus says it. Is it not the one who reclines at the table? The one who reclines at the table is the one who's in charge. They are the one who's being served. But look what he says. And you may want to underline this in Scripture. But I am, Jesus speaking, among you as one who serves. See, Jesus is saying, as I'm here to serve you, I may be the greatest. I may be the son of God. I am the one who created all things and uphold things by the word of my hand. But I am here to serve you. Take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 13, would you please? John chapter 13. Jesus is pointing back that he is the one who serves. Though Luke does not include the accounting of the whole evening events, this dispute of who is the greatest comes right after Judas has left to conspire with the religious leaders and after Jesus had washed their feet. In John chapter 13, hopefully you're there, look at verse 12. We read this. This is what happens before this event. 
Now, when Jesus had washed their feet, now consider that what that would mean is, is in those days they wore sandals, right? And they, they were in dirty and their feet would get dirty as they're walking on the dirt roads and things of that nature. What would be the host would bring them in and he would take off his outer garment and he would put a towel on himself and he would then take and wash each person's foot feet that's odd to us typically you don't touch people's feet in today that that would not be something that's expected but in that day it was one way in which someone would serve someone else and this is what Jesus does it must it must have been mind-boggling to them and he said to them as we continue in verse 13 verse 12 do you understand what I have done to you in verse 13 he goes you call me teacher and lord and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. If I can do this, you should be able to do this. Verse 15, for I have given you an example that you should also do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, Jesus says, a servant is not greater than his master, nor a master messenger or uh, nor a messenger excuse me greater than the one who sent him if you know these things blessed you are if you do them now listen to this. this is what happened their feet are barely dried and they're already missing the point of what jesus said have you ever done that with somebody you're talking to them you have a conversation you walk aside you blink and all of a sudden it's like you didn't even have the conversation They've forgotten everything you've told them. Uh, true, if you have toddlers, you know exactly what I'm talking about, or teens. It's just that's the way life is. But in this case, their feet are barely dried, and yet here they are arguing over who is the greatest. They're not arguing over who can wash whose feet or how they can serve one another. They're wanting to know who's going to be the best and the brightest. This is demonstrating their lack of awareness and understanding of Jesus' teachings and his actions. Throughout his time with them, they had heard him teach, as you see here in Matthew, the greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself be exalted. They heard him say, when he sat down and he called the twelve, and he said to them, if anyone be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And then earlier in Luke, for he who is least among you is the one who is great. All of this went right past their heads. They either forgotten it, neglected it, just didn't figure it was important. All they wanted to know is when Jesus' kingdom come, would they have a prominent place beside him? It was obvious at this point, on the eve of his crucifixion, the disciples still had not taken his teachings to heart. They were still struggling with the concept of the kingdom of God. They believed that Jesus would be initiating his kingdom on earth, and with the promise of the new covenant they were just given, they were jockeying for position in his cabinet. I want this position. I want that position. It was a frivolous argument. Time was not the time. This was not the time to be pressing on an issue of that nature. It was selfish. And it was childish. And Jesus wastes no time in rebuking their attitude. This is not the kingdom of God attitudes. However, 
This is what I like about scriptures. I like about the Father. Look what I love about Christ. It's like a good friend and shepherd. Jesus finishes his rebuke in his correction by giving them then a word of encouragement in verse 28. Look at verse 28, going back to Luke 22. And look at verse 28. So he rebukes him on one hand, but then on the other hand, he says, but you are those who have stayed with me at my trials, in my trials. And I assign you as my father has assigned to me, I am assigning you a kingdom that you may drink and eat at my table in my kingdom and set on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. He now recognizes and praises them for their commitment and faithfulness to him during all of his trials. See, he rebukes and he corrects, but he also encourages and he praises and he lifts them up. He wants them to understand that, listen, what you're asking for, this attitude is wrong. However, I need you to know that because of your faithfulness, you will receive a reward. Pastor John MacArthur notes that Christ's entire life and ministry were filled with temptations and hardships and sorrows and agonies, not to mention the suffering of the cross that he knew were yet to come. When Jesus said, foxes and uh, I can't remember what something foxes and something have holes to sleep and to hide but I have none Jesus is also speaking of his disciples they had left all things take your Bibles and turn to Matthew 19 these men had walked with Jesus for close to three years they had witnessed the healings the exorcisms the teachings and miracles of Jesus as well as doing some of that themselves But they have also endured the anger, the high expectation of ministry to hard-hearted people who were difficult to please. In Matthew chapter 19, days earlier from this event here, Jesus promises Peter when Peter exclaims in Matthew chapter 19, look at verse 27, Peter exclaimed, see, Jesus, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? And maybe that's fueling some of this. They're considering, what is it? Jesus is going to be betrayed? What does that mean? What is going to be left for us? Jesus keeps telling them, hey, I'm leaving. And they're, maybe they're discussing, well, what does that mean? Where will, what will we have? We left everything. I left my fishing business. I left my tax collector business. I've left it all. But Jesus, in verse 28 of Matthew 19, says, Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit what? Eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. You see, the kingdom of God is going to be ruled by servants. Servants of Christ. People who are humbled. People who are faithful. 
See, Jesus, as the word of God, proves to be profitable for doctrine, reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness as he spends his last few moments before his betrayal, crucifixion, torture with them. He chooses to use even their childish squabbles to teach them the kingdom values and ethics that they will need. One day they will be fully rewarded for their sacrifice and endurance. Now is not the time to squabble, but to serve. Now, there are several things that you and I can learn from this eternal dispute, internal dispute among the disciples and Jesus' rebuke, his correction, and his training. There are two key values of the kingdom of God that I want to point out through this passage. There's two kingdom values that you and I must adopt. Number one, humility. Number two, perseverance. Humility and perseverance is what it takes to be a disciple of Christ. James, the half-brother of Jesus, writes of the importance of humility in James chapter 4 in 6 through 10, where he says, God opposes the proud. But he gives grace to the humble. Submit yourself, therefore, to God. Resist the devil. He will flee from you. Draw near to God. And what? He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord. And then what? Then he will exalt you. The mark of a true Christian is humility. It's not jockeying for position. It's not trying to get their comeuppance. It's the one to serve. As a husband loves and serves his wife, and the wife loves and serves her husband, we are to love and serve our creator in the same way to love and serve each other. The Apostle Paul warns that pride is one of the major markers of the final Antichrist who is to come. Paul writes of this son of destruction. He opposes and he exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes the place in the seat of temple proclaiming himself to be God. That's the Antichrist that you and I are waiting for. The one whose appearance could be at any moment. Whose time is closer than it was before I opened up the pages of Luke this morning. And why shouldn't he? He wants the same desires of his father, the devil. The prophet Isaiah, through the Holy Spirit, pulls back the cosmic curtain of the days before the days of creation of earth to describe Satan's fall and his scheme. Where we read, how are you fallen from heaven, O day star, son of the dawn? That's speaking of of Satan, the adversary. How are you cut down to the ground who laid the nations low? You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will sit on the throne of my high. I will sit on the mount of the assembly in the far reaches of the earth. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Can you hold it there just for a moment there on that passage? This is the disciples. They were saying the same thing. I will be the greatest in the kingdom. I will be the goat. I will be the one who will set and judge. I will be ruling. You will be second. They're one to exalt themselves. 
That's the attitude. That's the mindset of Satan himself, who then used it against our first parents. And he says, eat of this tree. If you do, you will be like God's. You and I are to humble ourselves or we will face the same fate in the lake of fire as Satan himself. So not only humility, but also perseverance. Paul encourages the church of Ephesus to keep alert with all perseverance. The author of Hebrew inspires us to lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely He calls us to run with endurance the race that is set before us. And and this is verse that's not my favorite verse. Only because I do not like to run. He's already chuckling. Randy, Randy, I got to tell the story on Randy. I guess Randy tells me that he's there early to set up for the archery for the bows. And all of a sudden, here comes Randy up. He says, "I've I've been running. Randy just sits there and he runs the hills. But we're called to run with endurance perseverance. Jesus had informed his disciples that by their endurance, they will gain their lives. Jesus is teaching us that faithfulness in this age equals rewards in the kingdom of God. Let me say it again. He is teaching that faithfulness and perseverance in this age today equals rewards in heaven, the kingdom of God. Of course, this is easy to preach and teach but much harder to live out. Endurance is difficult. Humility does not come natural to most of us. That's why the author of Hebrews cautions us instead to look to Jesus. Don't look to Peter and Paul and John. Don't look to to those that you want to emulate in this world. I think the worst thing that we have today is social influencers, whether it's, you know, whatever it is, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, Snap, whatever. You have these people who are making hundreds of thousands of dollars because they're influencing others. And we're looking to them to get a, a validation of our lives. Do we look like them? Do we act like them? Can we work out like them? Can we do this? Can we do that? The Bible says, no, look to Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. He persevered, despising the shame, and is now seated at the right hand throne of God. As we read earlier, because he humbled himself, God exalted him through his humility and his perseverance. Doing this assures us that we are not self-focused, self-centered, or self-motivated for worldly gains which unfortunately is the bane of all Christians, the cares of this world, the riches of this world. As Jesus warns, for what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet forfeits his own soul? You could have won $1.7 billion through the lotto this past week that will not get you into entrance in the kingdom of God. That price comes very short of what it costs to enter into the kingdom of God. In looking to Jesus, we're going to learn two things. And these, I think, are in the mind. Thank you, Ben. Number one, Jesus is the ultimate servant, hence why we should look to him. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to what? Serve 
and to give his life as a ransom for many. Could you guys just read that out loud with me? I just want to make sure we're all awake and ready to go. Ready? For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is the type of man that we should look up to. Pastor John Piper notes that not only was Jesus the servant of his people while he lived on earth, not only in healing them, teaching them, washing their feet, wiping away their tears, but he also will be our servant when he comes again in triumph and in power as the king of kings. Scripture says, truly, truly, I say, he will dress himself for servant and have them recline at the table and he will come and serve them. Jesus gives us as a picture of what he'll do on his return. He will serve those who persevered, persevered through humility. Not only that, but he also is our servant today. I will never leave you nor forsake you, he says. So we can confidently say, as David said, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me. Jesus today prays for us. He is the ultimate servant. For you and I, we look at men and we say, why can't we be like Mother Teresa? Wonderful lady, did many wonderful things. To be honest, I don't know where she is today, heaven or hell. As a Catholic, she was in a religion that did not teach Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sin in the way of scriptures. It's not by faith alone. It's through their service as a benefactor. For Gandhi, didn't believe in Jesus as a, as a son of God. And he's another man that we say he was a man who was humble, who persevered. We can think of many men, Martin Luther King Jr., man who seemed to be humble and persevered, at least on the outside. But yet at the end, you and I are to look to Jesus Christ. It's the only one we compare ourselves to. John Piper goes on to remark how wonderful his service is to the believer. I believe I might have this up there. Piper says that Jesus is not burdened down with our cares. He thrives on burden building, not burden giving. He loves to work for those who wait for him. He takes pleasure in those who hope in his steadfast love. His eyes run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless towards him. Jesus Christ, he ends by saying his exuberant, with omnipotent service for the sake of all who trust him. Jesus is the ultimate servant. He is the one that our eyes ought to be looked for. Husbands, if you want to know how to love and serve your wives, then look to Jesus. Parents, if you want to know how to, to raise your children, then look to Jesus. Do you want to know how to be the best employee? Then look to Jesus. How to be the best employer? Then look to Jesus. How to be the best uh, uh, resident, citizen of your, city, of your country or in your community? Then look to Jesus. Look to no one but to Jesus. Then secondly, because we are to look to Jesus... We are to imitate Christ. Paul says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Look at me, but only as I'm looking to Christ. When I falter, when I stray, then go the other way. Do not follow me down that pit. And so many times we follow pastors, we follow teachers, we follow other people, and they're leading us astray. We need to be alert to that of false prophets and false teachers and those who have false professions. We need to look to Jesus. We need to imitate Christ. 
It's always interesting when you see little children start to do that. I think it's more so with, with sons and fathers where they'll sit there and you'll watch a son mimic his father doing things. Or the, or the little the daughter who will start to mimic her mother in the kitchen or in other types of chores and things like that. There's nothing sweeter than that. So let's imitate Christ. In his letters to the Corinthians at Philippi, we read earlier in our scripture reading, Philippians chapter 2, he says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant to yourselves than yourselves. Disciples were missing this. They couldn't get past their own pride, desires, and ambitions. So we're not to do things from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, we're to count others more significant. He says, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. That's the, that's the love your neighbor, right? Love your neighbor as yourself, meaning I desire their good as much as I desire myself. How would that change marriages? How would that change families? How would that change the dynamic, dynamic in so many ways today? Even from what we're seeing blaring in the news if we truly loved our neighbors, if we truly imitated Christ, if we truly looked to Christ as the ultimate servant. As children of God, we are not engaged in this type of silly, childish, selfish disputes of who is the goat, who is the greatest. Instead of entertaining self-delusions of importance, a status and reputation and position <coughs> that's fueled by envy and jealousy, you and I are to put on humility and perseverance as our Lord did. Pastor Nate Pickowitz uh, tweeted out this week, I think I might have this. He says, the Lord calls his sheep, let's not act like peacocks. And I think we have a lot of Christians that are walking around with their tails up trying to show it off. But you know what? We're to be humble, perseverance, imitating Christ. Not looking to be the greatest, but the best servant there is. Of course, you may even at this moment declare, not me. I don't act this way. I don't have this desire to be the greatest. I know exactly where I fit in, in society and the level of all things. And I believe that you would think that too. But I'd like to gently push back that many times we do act this way. Now, I would say that as a church, I'm very thankful. God has blessed us with a church in which we have not had many people come in here seeking their own agenda, seeking to have preeminence in the church. We've had a few of those. We've had some rough times with those. But, you know, God's blessed us with good people. I believe you guys are, are desiring to love God, imitate Christ, and love each other. I see that in you. But yeah, we want to get down into it. We may not be describing that. We may not be having those outward fights. But I'm going to share with you, I think we have those inward fights within ourselves. And it shows up in times you may not think of. See, here's where it can show up. Ready? With interruptions. With interruptions. Your wife calls, dear honey. Oh, doesn't she know what I'm doing? What work I have? The child who's pulling out your dress. Mommy, 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 mommy. Ah! Who's the greatest? Do it at work. 
sales calls, scams cards, scam card calls, all sorts of things. Interruptions. We're having a debate of who's the greatest. Why are they interrupting me? Do they not understand how important my time is? Do they understand that I'm busy? Do they understand that I'm, I'm, I'm filled up? I, I can't give any more? I have a thing on my, on my uh, desk to remind me that interruptions are just God-ordained moments. And sometimes I need to remember that. As I get another phone call, another email, another thing, another like this. But you need to remember that each and every one of those interruptions are God-ordained moments that God has given you to test your character and to strengthen you, to draw you near to God. So you and I need to look at these interruptions, not as, not as things to say of who is the greatest, but how can I serve this person at this moment? Now, maybe they do need a rebuke. Hey, this is not the appropriate time to call. Hey, young person, hey, I'm on the phone. Can you please... The rebuke, a correction is necessary. That's where we see Jesus, rebuke and correction, but then praise and lift him up. Listen, little one, you need some humility. I don't, I'm not here to serve every single moment of your time. Perseverance, you need to wait. That's what we're called to do, to imitate Christ. How would Christ teach you? When you're saying, Lord, help me with this. Oh, Lord, I need this. Oh, Lord, you're interrupting him all the time. Now, that's not actually really true because you can't interrupt the Son of God. He's able to handle all of those things. But interruptions, we're having that argument. How about with our priorities? Time, money, energy. How I spend my time, how I spend my money. Who's the greatest? Who's going to get what? I remember one time, this was years ago, Don and I were struggling a little bit with finances and I had a, you know, those calls, one of those calls. When are you going to pay this bill? When are you going to pay this bill? And I says, well, I... I just don't have the money right now. I, I, I paid this other bill. She goes, well, why'd you pay them and not us? I said, because they called me first and yelled loudest. I'm just honest, <laughs> you know? They were the greatest need at the greatest time at the, at the moment. But what's your priorities? You're saying who's the greatest, and you're now, now you're putting that out. Do you see your time, your energy, your gifts, everything that God's given you? Do you see it as a servant to use for God's glory and for the building and lifting up of others? And then grumblings and complaints. Requests and requirements are always coming to us. The Bible says do all things without grumbling and complaining. And there are times that we're saying who's the greatest with those words. Why are they asking me to do this? Why don't they do? We're saying they're, they're, my needs are greater than their needs. We need to be careful. For there are many times when we are not living out the humility and the perseverance that God has called us. We are having a discussion among ourselves, in our minds, who is the greatest? And the answer is always going to be, two thumbs, me. Or, or, instead of being the man, the king, who's the Lord, we're benefactors. So many of you play the who is the greatest by doing the reverse passive-aggressive type thing. Well, I'll serve them, but it's only because of how great I am. And you use your goodwill to manipulate others to do what you want. Take your Bibles, if you would, and turn to Romans chapter 12. I want to share, then, what should you and I do? We understand this is a problem. This is our heart, right? 
prideful, self-seeking, self-motivated. We want our desires and passions satisfied. We understand that that's wrong. We're to imitate Christ. We're to imitate, uh, we're to imitate Christ. Christ is our greatest imitator or our great, greatest uh, servant. So how do we combat this default desire for self-promotion? We know it's to humility, perseverance, and virtue and excellence in our lives. Taking Jesus at his word when he commands us to love God with all of our heart, soul, and mind, and our neighbors as ourselves. So this is what we are to do. We are to understand that we are to follow God's commands. Now in Romans chapter 12, 9 through 13, he's writing to the church at Rome, and he's going to give them several things in which they can defeat this who is the greatest attitude. How they can serve in humility and perseverance. And look at verse 9 of chapter 12 of Romans 12. Paul teaches us, number one, let your love be genuine. Don't let it be faint. Are fake. Don't, don't let it be something that just you're just saying, but let your love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Christians, we need to abhor what is evil. We need to see evil for what it is. It is evil. It is sin against the holy God. We need to hold fast to what is good. He goes on in verse 10, love one anotherly with brotherly affection, phileo, like Philadelphia, brotherly love. We are to love and care for each other as if they are our brothers. Outdo one another in showing honor. Underline that. If you could do that, man, you're, you're, you're halfway there in that race. Outdo one another in showing honor. Oh, let me. Well, no, let me. Well, let me. No, let me. Play that type of game if you need to. Not at a benefactory or trying to outdo, manipulate someone, but of a true servant heart. Verse 11. Do not be slothful in zeal, but fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Persevere. Don't fall asleep. Go to the ant, you sluggard. See how he works. Number 12, rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Let me tell you, being a servant at times is going to be difficult but we need to persevere. Serving your wife, serving your husband, serving your children is going to be overwhelming. But do it with perseverance, humility. Verse 13, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. He goes on then, continues on there, and that's a great passage of how a church and how Christians should act. But I want to close it with this. I am so thankful for OVBC. For our church, because when you're here, you're doing these things. But I encourage you, I don't always know what happens when you leave outside these doors. Do this in your marriage. Do this in your home with your children. Live this out in your workplace, in your community. Be one who's not seeking to be the greatest, but be the one who serves as Christ served. This here is a good start to combating pride, envy, and jealousy. May the Holy Spirit sanctify us in the truth that we may be obedient to the Father's command to imitate the example of Jesus Christ, his Son, who gave his life in humility and in perseverance, but then exalted with the name above all names. For at the name of Jesus, all can be saved. In closing, Romans 12, 12, in that same chapter, says, Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. 
Let us be people in hope, tribulation, and prayer that pleases God. I'm going to ask the worship team to come ahead and come up this time. And Randy, as we get ready for pastor's prayer. And Randy, if you could also just remember uh, at the end of the ladies' retreat, they're leaving here a little bit afterwards. And so we're so thankful for our ladies who are able to go on this retreat. Uh, heaven rules. I think you'll enjoy it. I think Dawn and Nicole and them and, and Emily have put together a great thing for you. So I'm excited for this. Let's pray for them. Let's pray for the husbands who are left with the children. See, I gave you this message of timely time. You down, you need humility and perseverance to survive the next three days, right? Two and a half days. So let's pray for that. But with every high bow and every eye closed, I'm just going to ask you to take a moment to pause and consider what Jesus says in his rebuke, but also his words of encouragement to his disciples. Consider in which ways do you debate and dispute who is the greatest in your own life? Then we ask you to pray as Randy prays. That you may pray that the Holy Spirit will convict you of any sin, confess it, repent of it, and turn towards him so that you too may be like Christ as he has called us to. Randy. We hope you have enjoyed this week's message. We encourage you to share it with others. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at info at orangevilla.org. Be sure and join us for next week's message by subscribing to this podcast. To learn more about our ministry, submit prayer requests, or to find ways you can help share the gospel, visit us online at orangevilla.org. Till next time, we hope the grace and peace of God's love be ever present in your life.